Blog Talk Radio. Joining us on today's interview for the Innovation in Myeloma series on MPatient Radio. We are thrilled at your participation in the series so far and have had over 3,000 of you listen in. We hope that, you, that we as patients can help you understand research so you can find and participate in clinical trials that are the best for you. We welcome your suggestions about additional topics you may want to have covered. And you can always email me by going to the mpatient website and using the link button, or the contact button, or you can email me directly at jenny at crowdcare.org. If you would like to call in to ask questions in the later part of today's show, you can call in to 347-637-2631. Now, we are very excited and grateful that we have the opportunity today to speak with Dr. C. Ola Landgren. Um, we are catching him as he travels, so we are just grateful that he's taken the time to be with us. Dr. Langren is a thought leader and top researcher in multiple myeloma, and to introduce him even in those terms is really an understatement. He's a senior investigator in the metabolism branch at the Center for Cancer Research, the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, and also is also the head of the multiple myeloma section of the medical oncology branch. He is originally from Sweden and received his um, MD and PhD degrees in Sweden at the Karolinska Institute and joined the National Cancer Institute in 2004. Dr. Langren's major research interests are in the causes of myeloma, how myeloma is diagnosed and treated, particularly in the early stages of MGUS and smoldering myeloma. His research also includes how the immune system both affects myeloma and how it is affected by myeloma. By myeloma. Um, he wants to change our collective mindset to first believe we can find a cure and then create an outline for how we're going to do just that. So with this target in mind, he is leading work on the creation of a blueprint for myeloma, for a myeloma cure with IMF's Black Swan Initiative, and we are so fortunate to have him with us. So thank you, Dr. Langren, for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer, for, for having me. It's really a true honor for me. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for, for taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, now, your research assumes that we can find a cure if we're looking for one. So is one of the pieces to creating this blueprint related to understanding actually potential causes of myeloma? Well, I think uh, the way I view the relationship between causes and uh, the trajectory of disease is I think that clearly myeloma is not one disease. There are different types of myeloma. And I actually think that people who are diagnosed with multiple myeloma probably have more than one type of myeloma going on at the same time, even from the very beginning. I think there could be different causes that could lead to what we call multiple myeloma across different individuals. So in one person, I think maybe the genetic factors could play a greater role, and maybe in another person, environmental factors could play a, a, a greater role. I do think, based on what we know from research, that in general, it is probably a interaction between environmental things and genetic things that are related to our constitutional genetic code. Hmm. I think that's fascinating. Um, and your research, I know, is also focused on the rest of the immune system and how it affects myeloma and is also then affected by myeloma after treatment or after the progression of the disease. So can you describe your research in that area? Yeah, so that's a 
very big area of investigation. A lot of uh, very brilliant researchers around the world are looking into the role of the immune system in cancer in general and in myeloma in particular. So our contributions are focusing on how normal plasma cells, they are behaving uh, in relation to the outgrowth of the clone that starts from MGOS that goes through smoldering myeloma into multiple myeloma. How the role of the normal plasma cells uh, actually, how the mechanisms that involve that actually are working. We're also looking at other subsets of immune cells that regulate it that could, for example, include something called natural killer cells. We're also looking at the role of T cells. There are natural killer T cells also, and there are also other B cells, lymphocytes, beyond the plasma cells. So there's a whole range of immune system, uh, cells in the immune system that probably is involved in regulating. And now I'm telling you something that I don't know, but that this is kind of my thinking, and I'm trying to mm -hmm. explore this in a research fashion. I do think that probably at earlier stages of, of, of this disease, in, at MGOS, probably the immune system can control the cells. But maybe it could be one model. This is what I'm thinking in my research. I'm trying to explore this and try to either prove it wrong or prove it right. That there could be mechanisms in the tumor cells that make the tumor cells basically resistant to the immune system's control uh, aspect. So the immune system controls the early stages. But mm -hmm. after a while, in some individuals, the tumor cells, they start doing things that makes them resistant to that. So I think, I don't think that is really purely driven by the tumor cells only. I think there is a balance between the immune system and the tumors. And I think we need to look into both. And that's what we are doing. So we are looking into all these subsets of cells and we're trying to look at mechanisms that involve that. And have, have you looked at um, triggers that might cause it like a virus also? Yeah, we do. Uh, so there are different ways, obviously, you could look at causation. You could do studies where you ask people, uh, have you been exposed to uh, chemical things? Have you been working in a certain area? Have you done those types of things? And then you can see if more people who develop a certain disease, such as myeloma, answer yes to that question compared to the general population. And that would mm -hmm. suggest that there may be something going on. But we, of course, have to be careful because... Sometimes it could be that people who do certain things, they also do other things. So uh, maybe there are, there are more smokers, or maybe they are eating certain things, or maybe they are just doing other things that we don't really think about. So these are more epidemiological approaches. And we have done studies where we looked into, for example, the role of pneumonia uh, in, the, in this context. And we found that people who developed myeloma were more prone to have episodes of for example, pneumococcal infection in the past before mm -hmm. myeloma happened in the general population. But it is possible that these were just manifestations of something else. Maybe the immune system was weakened, and that was the reason why the infection happened. And maybe mm -hmm. the weakening of the immune system actually was the driver of the development of the disease. So, again, you have to be careful when you, when you, when you draw conclusions based on these observations. We don't know if they're causal relationships or if they're just like manifestations of something else. Right. And and your research, I know, uh, mentioned chronic inflammation. So I don't know how that right. relates to your to what you're looking at with myeloma. But can you describe what how that's related? Yeah. So I think there are a lot of conditions 
that we as doctors and, and, and people who work in, in the clinical research field see, we may not always think about them as inflammatory processes. But in fact, if you look on a molecular level, mm-hmm. a lot of conditions actually involve immune responses and inflammation. And one of them is actually obesity. Mm-hmm. So uh, in fat cells, there are uh, um, different types of proteins that are released at higher or lower rates than, uh, or if you have a lot of fat cells, you have higher or lower rates. They are always released mm-hmm. by fat cells. So someone who has a lot of body fat have altered levels of, for example, something called uh, adiponectin. And adiponectin mm-hmm. uh, is an immune regulatory substance. So just having more of certain types of cells basically manipulates your inflammation levels and your immune status. So obesity could be viewed, I believe, as an inflammatory disease state. And we have found obesity to be linked with myeloma and even with endocrine. Interesting. So that's one example. That's one example. And we have studied this in molecular detail also. We are looking into this as, as we speak. Okay, that's great. Okay, now, um, when you, we were talking about the blueprint, let's talk about that a little bit more. I know the Black Swan Initiative is part of that blueprint. Can you kind of describe what, what that is and... Um, the the whole blueprint and how you're approaching this. So you want me to talk about the blueprint or the black swan or both? Oh, both. Okay, so let's start with the black swan. So the black swan uh, is something that uh, Susie Novis and Brian mm-hmm. Bury from the International Myeloma Foundation started. Mm-hmm. So it's their idea, and they invited four more uh, people to participate uh, in this uh, group, and uh, mm-hmm. the four people are. Dr. Jesus San Miguel in Spain, it's Dr. Mm-hmm. Vincent Rashkumar uh, at Mayo, it's Dr. Michael Kaufman, who is involved in biotech in Boston, and it's mm-hmm. myself. So the six of us uh, have been discussing, we have been meeting every three to six months for about one and a half year now, and mm-hmm. the scope of this group is really to sit down to look at what we do, to look at everybody else in the field is doing, and try to ask the question. What would be an important thing to solve in order to help the field? Not our own research agendas, not our own interests, really from a, from a big picture perspective. What would really make a huge impact for the whole field? Mm-hmm. Who could really go for that? How could, we, how could we facilitate that? What are the key questions? So we have had a lot of discussion. And then we started to rank these things and we cons- continuously discuss more and more new ideas, and we continuously re-rank and we discuss back and forth. So for right mm-hmm. now, the key question we think needs to move forward is minimal residual disease. And the reason we think that is because the newer drugs we are now using can take a very high proportion of patients into complete remission, which is fantastic. But we mm-hmm. need to think beyond that. We need to think how deep of these responses do we actually obtain in individual patients? So having every person reaching complete response is great, but if there is still disease left, then we're not done. So we really believe that minimal residual disease needs to be focused on. So that's what that group is currently working on. There will be more, more areas of focus in the future, but for right now, that is a key focus. And I'm involved in the development in my own research group, Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working on flow-based assays, and I'm working on molecular tools, and I'm also working on imaging tools. So so we have a lot of work going on in that context. So that's kind of what the Black Swan group 
is doing is to come up with new important questions for the field and try to move those forward. That's okay. what we're trying to do. And we don't do the work ourselves. I mean, we, we have to do that in collaboration with everybody. So we, we invite people and we ask people what they think and we try to stimulate discussion. So we basically try to serve as a facilitator when we work in that context. Okay. Well, it's a great project. Oh, thank you. And, and how does that differ from the blueprint? So now the blueprint, the blueprint is really something that I've been thinking about this for for quite a few years now. But I I wasn't really sure how to approach it. So I've been developing early treatment studies for several years, and I've had a mm-hmm. long term interest in early disease. So I talked a lot to people, the people I mentioned. They are very good friends of mine, and I I interacted with a lot of very, very smart people around the world who work on myeloma. Talk to the people back in my at, at my own institution. We have a lot of very good people there as well. So really, what I kind of concluded for myself was that I think the main obstacle why we don't have a cure for myeloma, I believe, is because we, we tell ourselves that it's incurable. Mm-hmm. That's what I kind of didn't like. I didn't like that. So I thought that's we have to remove that. We have to stop mm-hmm. saying that. So every paper I have written uh, after I kind of came to that conclusion, and every paper I will write in the future, including papers I will review for journals, and I review a lot of papers, I will comment on that and say, please remove that because we don't know that. Mm-hmm. So now on a more realistic or a more kind of pragmatic note, I think we have the drugs now that are so effective we have the tools to monitor the biology. We have the minimal residual disease tools. And we have now started thinking about treating earlier disease. So for me, really, writing this blueprint paper with my colleagues, Dr. Rashevsky and Dr. Korde and Dr. Wu, mm-hmm. was a way to basically put down our thinking as a map where we didn't have all the answers, but we wanted to at least ask the key questions that mm-hmm. we need to work on and other people need to work on. We felt were the important questions. And obviously there are other questions as well. But basically it was an effort to write down the key questions that we need to solve. And then we have to work together to do that. That's the blueprint. Okay. And and the blueprint questions, are those also beginning with um, kind of focusing on the predictors and the diagnostic testing? So the blueprint questions... Translate into the stuff I talked about for the Black Swan project. Mm-hmm. So I think the key, in my opinion, the key questions are, for example, uh, can you reach a cure if you treat earlier? Mm-hmm. Another key question is, if you have the best MRD assays out there, is that is that a a signature for a cure? Mm-hmm. If you if you develop therapies that are based on what you know in terms of biology in detail, is that the way to reach a cure? Instead of giving everybody the same therapy. Mm-hmm. So I think having better understanding of biology, maybe treating a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. and then to make sure that you actually monitor what you do, instead of just giving everybody the same number of cycles and then hope that it works. To me, that makes absolutely no sense. And then you mm-hmm. say it's incurable. Of course mm-hmm. it's incurable because you didn't do a good job. Mm-hmm. It's a, or it's not at a detailed enough level. No. 
Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about these um, the test, testing that you're working on, both the imaging testing and the um, more in-depth flow cytometry testing. Can you describe what those tests are and um, yeah. how they work? So this is what I think. I think imaging for myeloma has major potential. I think the way we are using it right now is absolutely not uh, a way to take advantage of of, of current technologies. So mm -hmm. just to give you a few examples. So if you do a skeletal survey, which is still gold standard, mm -hmm. you are looking to see if there are lesions in the bone. Mm -hmm. Lesions in the bone by skeletal survey are reflective of between 30 and 50% of the bone structure being, ab being dearranged. So mm -hmm. for example, if someone has 20% of the bone being uh, uh, wiped out, if mm -hmm. you do a skeletal survey, that's going to look normal. So okay. that's a major limitation. Right. If you do a CT, if you do a CT, a CAT scan, mm -hmm. you probably increase your detection rate by 10 to 20 times. So you can pick up smaller holes in the bone. But now, mm -hmm. now this is the most important part, I think, along these lines. Myeloma is not a disease of the bone. Myeloma is a disease of the bone marrow. Mm -hmm. So the skeleton has a hard and a soft component, and the disease mm -hmm. is in the soft component. That's in the bone marrow. Okay. That's where the myeloma cells live. And when they get active, they trigger other cells in the, in the bone marrow, talking of the immune system we talked about before, mm -hmm. and also cells that are involved in bone metabolism. And when you start seeing lesions, they actually are complications of myeloma. So okay. why are we imaging complications of a disease? Why don't we image the, the actual problem, the disease? To me, that makes mm. no sense. So, okay. And we could do that. So CTs are not so good for that. Skeletal survey is completely useless. You cannot mm -hmm. image bone marrow with skeletal survey. You have to do MRI. So MRI mm -hmm. is a very good method to image soft tissue. So you could do MRI of the bone marrow. And there are actually people who have done that. So I think a very brilliant researcher in Germany is Jens Hillengas. He's a young, mm -hmm. very energetic, and very creative researcher in Heidelberg. So he has shown that if you image myeloma patients, most of them have changes in the bone marrow that you definitely can pick up by MRI. Mm -hmm. If you image smoldering patients, maybe a third of them have very similar changes. And if you now start looking in, in more depth, you can see that some smoldering patients have actually only one of those, and some of them have actually multiple. And he has shown in his studies that those people who have more of them, they have developed my, multiple myeloma within a year or two. Oh, so wow. to me, that shows, shows example that the disease maybe, or it suggests at least, it suggests that the disease could maybe start off at a single site, and then mm -hmm. it keeps on spreading, and then it takes off, and then it causes complications in terms of holes in your skeleton, and mm -hmm. then you start having pain, and then you go to the doctor, and then he or she mm -hmm. does a skeletal survey, and they image the complications. Mm -hmm. To me, that, that's something we need to change. We need to think about new ways of detecting the disease earlier. I think, to me, mm -hmm. that's very, very important. So that's an example. Okay. We are working on this, and we are trying to implement different types of PET, also in MRI, and we're mm -hmm. also implementing tests in CT. So we're working on that. And there are a lot of people that do a lot in this area. I think this is a very important area. Well, it seems like maybe a low-hanging fruit area where the, te yeah. the technology yeah. already exists, and, and let's 
go go deep on it. I think I think one of the problems is that again, if doctors who treat myeloma keep on saying it's incurable and they keep mm -hmm. on saying that bone lesions is a criteria to start therapy, it stops the whole uh, evolution and, and development for new thinking. That's like a, mm -hmm. a major roadblock. So mm -hmm. getting rid of this lesion being the indication for therapy, complications is the indication for therapy. Uh, I think that's a major, major thing, actually, I think. Hmm. Well, I think I agree. Um, can you describe a little bit more about the um, the flow cytometry test that you're working on? Yes. Yes. So I want to say that the best group in the world uh, with the strongest track record whatsoever is Dr. Jesus San Miguel's group. They are just uh -huh. outstanding. They, they uh -huh. have done so much work. Uh, Alberto Orfao is a star in flow cytometry in hematologic diseases. Mm -hmm. They have done more than anyone has done in the field of flow for hematologic diseases. Mm -hmm. So what we have done is that we have tried to uh, set up all their platforms, and we have done that in our actually clinical operations. So we now have everything they have developed for many years, and we are very, very happy being able to, to, to do what they have developed. They, they have done a fantastic job. So if people say that they do flow of the bone marrow, Mm -hmm. That means that they run a sample in a machine, but it doesn't tell you anything more. So there are very many things that you have to be careful about. So, for example, mm -hmm. if you if you look for abnormal cells, they don't have like a little uh, signature on them saying I'm cancer, and the others say I'm not. You actually mm -hmm. have to do a lot of work to sort out which is which. So you load the machine with colors, and they are antibodies that have colors. So mm -hmm. some people have two colors, some people have four colors, mm -hmm. some people have eight colors. So the more colors you have, the higher likelihood of being able to sort out good from bad. Mm -hmm. So we are using now 12 colors. We have 12 colors we load in an wow. eight-color machine, and this is what the Spanish groups have done. But many groups mm -hmm. in the United States are still using four colors. Some are okay. using six or eight. So that's one thing. Another thing okay. is if you treat and you do a biopsy, and you run it to the machine, what's the definition of being positive? So if you find one tumor cell, is that positive? Actually, labs would not call that positive. They would call that negative. Because many of those cells could be hard to distinguish from normal cells. So there is a mm -hmm. bit of a gray area. So many groups say that you need to have at least 20. And mm -hmm. other groups say you need to have 50. So wow. that's a gray area. How do you determine positive from negative? Mm -hmm. So that comes into play when you, or that is important to keep in mind when you think about how you come to that number, because some groups, they check 100,000 cells in the bone marrow with a flow machine. And if they find 50 to be positive, they call it positive. If they are negative, all of them, or less than 50 are positive, they call it negative. So the Spanish group has shown that you should look for more cells because then you're more likely to find the bad ones if they're still there. Mm -hmm. So what we are doing is that we are looking for three or more million cells. So if you check three million or four million cells, you're more likely to find the bad ones if they're still there. Yeah, because you have a bigger sample. So I think what I'm telling you here is how do you conclude abnormal to from normal? How do you set the cutoff for abnormal to normal? And how many 
events we're actually checking. And I can tell you, we just uh, we just uh, surveyed all the big centers in the U.S. This is coming out very soon in print mm -hmm. uh, in the Blood Journal. We have we we're going to publish this very very soon. Mm -hmm. The difference across laboratories in America in August of 2013 varies with a factor of 100. Wow. There's a hundredfold difference. If people tell you you are MOD negative, that varies by a factor of 100 for myeloma. Okay, well, that's huge. stunning. <laughs> it's stunning. It's and, kind and, of as shocking. A yeah, as a patient, you want to say, okay, well, where is the most detailed testing happening, and regardless of where I live or where I can get treated, let's I want to go to that place and get tr get my diagnostics at least run to the very deepest level that I can. So, so if you're yeah. a patient, what do you suggest? Well, so I, I want to be cautious because uh, I, I, want to, I want to say a few things. So the mm -hmm. consequence of what I told you is that you could go to a center and they tell you a negative. And the doctor who treats you think you're negative because usually the treating doctor don't look into the nitty-gritty of how the lab is doing it. Usually clinical mm -hmm. doctors don't know these details. They believe the reports. I mean, that kind of, that's what they told me at med school also. This is the report. But if you start looking how they came to that, mm -hmm. then you start seeing other things. So I think there's a huge uh, lack of deep understanding. And it's not that the labs are trying to do a bad job. It's just like the tradition. So someone basically needs to say, hey, listen, we need to have the same testing. The consequence mm -hmm. of the current scenario is that there are a lot of people that are told they're negative, but they actually are positive in another lab. So that needs mm -hmm. to be cleaned up. Mm -hmm. But no, your, your question is, how, how shall you per pursue this as a patient? I think that although this sounds very obvious that you need the right test and everything needs to be kind of the same and all that, I mean, that needs to be done. But we mm -hmm. have also to be careful because what are the clinical implications? Do we know that MRD negativity really, 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 really leads to longer survival? I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's a key question. Mm -hmm. And I think, in my mind, the answer is that there are clearly indications that the answer is yes. But we need larger studies to really prove that. Mm -hmm. And I think if you want to develop a cure, you have to get rid of the disease. So it depends on what you want to do. If you want to get rid of the disease, you have to be zero. Mm -hmm. If you want to just extend survival, you probably want to get rid of the disease also. But if you want to have formal proof, then you have to do the studies and really prove what I'm saying. And we, mm -hmm. that has not been done in a very, very systematic manner. So that's mm -hmm. the missing piece. But I think we need to do this. But you have to prove it in order to to really have the hard data. And mm -hmm. I'm working very, very hard to do this. Okay, so I, I guess the question still is, for a patient, where do they go to? Like, who is who is doing the more detailed level? And if there's that much variety in it, how do we know as patients that the results that we're getting from some of our testing is, I mean, that's a glaring question for me as a patient, anyway. I think that uh, a way to to solve the problem I'm addressing to you is if every mm -hmm. patient asks his or her doctor, mm -hmm. I want to know how you came to that. That will drive mm -hmm. the process. So I don't know really, I don't have the telephone book of every center, but yeah. I can tell you that the difference is a hundredfold 
uh, from the best to the worst. So you have to ask, uh, and uh, and people can look up online the Spanish group. They do minimum mm -hmm. of three million cells. They use mm -hmm. eight or twelve color antibodies, mm -hmm. and they count count twenty or more cells as positive. So that's a very high detection rate. Uh, right. Uh, and and I've heard about the gene array expression profile. Is that test relevant yes. in this mix? Is is that part of this this testing? Is it? Can you describe how that's related? Well, so um, so I think I think it's fair to say that in the, at the current time, gene expression profile, which by the way is kind of quite old technology, is mm -hmm. about. I would say 10 or more years old, really. Okay. Uh -huh. That type of technology is, I mean, in a clinical setting, it's older in a research setting, but clinically has been used for more than 10 years now. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's fair to say that if someone orders that, it really rarely changes the way the doctor would treat myeloma. Mm -hmm. I can actually not really say I know of very many cases where that has been the case. Mm -hmm. However, you could argue and say that if you have certain signatures, you maybe are more uh, uh, alerted to that the disease could come back quicker. So if that happens, then you need to jump on the disease. So you kind of mm -hmm. you kind of can see if if there is any hint of that, that this disease may be of that type, but it, it, mm -hmm. for the upfront therapy, I don't think it really changed very much. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in the future, though, uh, you could do much more sophisticated molecular profiling with the mm -hmm. genome uh, sequencing, both DNA and RNA sequencing, where you basically sequence the entire genetic code of the tumor, like was done 20 years ago when when the human genome was sequenced, you can do the human genome of, a, of an individual patient's disease. That's mm -hmm. technically possible to do today. Technically possible. Mm -hmm. the, the problem is that, again, it would not change how individual doctors would treat. There is no drug that's kind of, this is the drug you shall give if you have this uh, mutation, for example, or if this translocation is there, this is how you do it. So, yes, you could do it. You could characterize it, but it will not have immediate implications. I can mm -hmm. see in the future that for people who have recurrent disease and you know the signature of the disease, that may be something that could impact the choice of therapy. But today, for today, we, we don't. We are not yet there. We don't have the drugs to match up with biology, really. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair okay. to say. Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, I, I see that. Okay, so. Um, in progressing towards your specialty, which is MGUS and smoldering myeloma, um, we're hearing a lot about that how how these diseases may just be early stage myeloma, but not all patients will develop into full blown myeloma. So, how does a a smoldering or MGUS patient kind of deal with with this or understand it better? Um, and can you just share a little bit about your research in that area? Yeah, so I see we see a lot of people at the NIH. We we probably see I don't know. I don't I, I don't know. We have very very many people coming to us, and we have very many smoldering patients we are seeing. Mm -hmm. I think that I think a couple of important uh, comments I would like to make is number one that MGUS 
in the vast majority of cases, they will never, ever, ever have any problems. So mm -hmm. life is full of risks. Life is full of risks. Driving a car is dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, doing a lot of things is dangerous. So MGUS on a relative scale is not a big problem. It's not. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, if someone is told that they have MGUS, they think about that a lot. But there are a lot mm -hmm. of things that people don't know about. There could be other diseases that are going on in the body, cardiac or other diseases. If you don't know about it, you don't think about it. But right, ignorance is bliss, right? right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's kind of what that is. So I usually tell people with MGUS that this is not a big problem. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Uh, I also think that it's important to think about is that the risk is not the same for every person. It mm -hmm. clearly is very, very different. It's actually very different. I think there are some MGUSes where the risk is probably as close to zero. You couldn't, of course, not guarantee that, but it's probably as close to zero as as we possibly could could say, because mm -hmm. the risk factors are really, really, really not there. And now mm -hmm. I'm talking about doing a very careful molecular characterization of, of a lot of things. And then there are people where the risk actually could be quite high. We have a study that is probably going to be published in a month or two, where we have looked mm -hmm. through close to 1,000 people with MGUS in collaboration with my Swedish uh, uh, colleagues, mm -hmm. where we actually show that there are some MGUS patients where the risk could be maybe even close to 50% at 10 years of follow-up. That's a very high risk, but that's a mm -hmm. very tiny proportion of people with MGUS that have that high risk. Most people mm -hmm. don't have that. They, they don't have any risk at all, almost numerically, very, very low. Mm -hmm. So my second comment is that the risk varies a lot across individuals. So I think mm -hmm. it's a thorough workup trying to understand the risk profile. I think it's very important if you're thinking yeah, of doing well, something about it in terms of intervention. Right. In terms of smoldering myeloma, I think I would like to be almost as bold as this to say that I'm not so sure that smoldering myeloma even exists. I think mm -hmm. it may actually not be correct. Because I think a lot of people that are currently diagnosed with smoldering, they are more on the MGUS side of the spectrum. And mm. some of the my smoldering patients actually have molecularly and also clinically to a certain degree, if you start looking with sophisticated techniques, very close to myeloma. I would call those early myeloma. Mm -hmm. And maybe a group in the middle where we cannot really tell what if they should go to the left or to the right. They may be the true smolderers, but I think numerically they are very few. So I think if you're thinking about smoldering, same thing, and it's even more important to try to do a very thorough workup to try to come up with a characterization of, 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 the, of the beast, so to speak, like mm -hmm. how high is actually the risk. I think that's a very, 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 very important question for the future. And I think those individuals, if if we are starting to treat earlier, and we are not yet there, but I think those individuals are the ones with high risk that probably should be the candidates for that, for those people who think that's what they want to do. We need to mm -hmm. see what studies show, if it really is beneficial to do that. We have some preliminary data, but we need more studies. And, and about how long do you think that will take to be able to identify? So... Already now we have certain tools we use in the clinic where we can say that around a third of the people we see with smoldering, they have what we call a higher risk, and their risk is probably my multiple myeloma in less than two years, one and a half to two years. Mm -hmm. There are certain hallmarks that basically 
leads to multiple myeloma within 6 to 12 months. Mm-hmm. We already have that. Some of okay. this is not yet published, so it needs to be replicated. But uh, I think we have some, uh, some tools, and there are published tools as well. Mm-hmm. But again, the vast majority of small brain patients don't have this high risk. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they have a high risk, but the, the highest risk is maybe only a third of the individuals. That are classified as smoldering today, you mean? The, the, a third of the smoldering patients probably have this very high risk. And okay. uh, the others, they have elevated risk. Maybe a third of the smoldering have a close to endless risk. And mm-hmm. a third of them have very high risk. And then there is this third in the middle that I don't really know. Some of them could maybe be categorized as the lower and some of them as the higher. And there may still be someone in the middle where we don't really know what risk they truly have. So... That's mm-hmm. kind of a problem we have right now. Okay. Okay, well, I I want to also cover your open clinical trials, and you have a long list. So are there some you would like to describe for us in detail? Uh, well, so I think uh, we have a very active program. Uh, our focus is, as I have tried to outline for you, to try to understand the mechanism of this disease as an early state. In mm-hmm. our clinic, we are 100% committed to our patients. Mm-hmm. Every patient is getting 100% of our attention. We are trying to use our clinical operation as a framework to understand uh, these questions and others. So although we are very research interested, we are very, very clinical in our approach. So mm-hmm. I think that's important to say about our program. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the the treatment trials that I think we are, where we are kind of on a relative scale the strongest is probably in the setting of newly diagnosed and for uh, for uh, early disease. So we have molecular profiling, for example. Mm-hmm. Patients with smoldering can be very, very detailed workup uh, along the lines I try to outline. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of treatment, we have, for high-risk smoldering patients, we have actually treatment studies open for that, for people who are interested in that. Mm-hmm. And we are not trying to counsel anyone to do something they don't want. We are just mm-hmm. trying to, to, to show what the options are. And the standard of care, we are very, very clear about that, still is watchful waiting. Uh, and then we show what's available in the literature, and we always ask people to ask other doctors. We, I always encourage people to seek other doctors' opinion before they decide mm-hmm. to do things in something that's kind of more experimental, always. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for newly diagnosed, important decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. for newly diagnosed, we have also, um, we have a program where we have very, very, very good results. And uh, we have actually been so bold, so we have collected samples, but we do not do transplants with autologous stem cell transplants as the standard. We collect the cells, but we don't do the transplant. In the event that someone were to recur, mm-hmm. that's something that could be considered an option. But mm-hmm. the transplant is, in these studies, actually built in as a delayed. So you do therapy, and that's it. There is no transplant. And we have excellent results. Mm-hmm. Do you do transplants at your clinic? So we have a transplant program at the MCI. So we are working with the transplant team and our myeloma section in very tight collaboration. Mm-hmm. I, and I, wa- I wanted to um, 
talk about that because sometimes when you think about the NIH, you just think about research, but you have a very thriving myeloma practice. So I think that's important for for patients to know. Okay. Um, As patients, I think we, we all believe that a cure can be found. So our question for you is how patients can best support your work and the work of the Black Swan Initiative or asking these important questions. Well, I think that asking uh, the local doctor uh, if they tell, say that uh, the samples, you know, the results came back from the samples, and it shows that it's MRD negative. To ask what does that mean, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 how was that determined? I want to know exactly how how they came to that conclusion. And mm-hmm. I'm afraid that a lot of doctors, probably 95% of doctors, don't know that. I think that's something that we need to change together. Mm-hmm. So working together, then we can change that. I think that's a very, very fundamental question. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of support, I think that the IMF is a fantastic organization. They mm-hmm. they are very committed. So I think helping them uh, with their mission in various ways, I think, is another important uh, thing that people could do. Again, I think working alone, you can only do so much, but working together, you usually can do much more. We are very, very collaborative, and uh, we try to help other people. We do that at different levels. We try to share our data. We participate in meetings. We give talks. We mentor a lot of students and and young doctors. We we try to be very generous. That's our, our way, and I think that's kind of, that would be my advice to people and families to try to continue. I know a lot of people are very, very committed. I'm very, very mm-hmm. committed myself. I think just being honest and, and committed and, and work hard, that's the only way forward. Mm-hmm. And I agree. And um, just so people know, if they do want to support the IMF, their website asterisk is www.myloma.org if you would like to support that. Okay, I think we we need to move forward into the questions because we have several questions that have been sent in and also people that are on the phone. Um, We ask that your questions are specific to Dr. Langren's research and that if you'd like to ask a question, you just have to hit one on your keypad and then when you hear um, the system say unmuted, it will mean that your call has been taken and you're free to ask your question. So... Let me start. Okay, so if if you are available to ask a question, go ahead and press. Oh, I see two questions. Okay. To start. Okay, go ahead with your question. All right, the phone number is um, 801-381-4408. Go ahead with your question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, go ahead with your question. Okay, um, go ahead with your question. The number is 757-495-8432. Yes, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Yeah. Yes, uh, although I'm a uh, five-year smolder and, of course, extremely interesting in your uh, smoldering work, um, I'm also in a support group and... Um, I have a question about uh, your clinical trials uh, with uh, other patients. We have a patient who um, has been recommended by both her um, myeloma expert and her local oncologist uh, 
to get an aloe transplant there at your facility uh, at the NCI. Um, however, the question, of course, first is um, whether or not you, uh, in, in your effort there at the NCI, have some uh, clinical trials uh, for people in relapsed and refractory states uh, uh, as well as smoldering myeloma that uh, might interest so uh, you're asking me if we have therapies for relapse refractory, and you ask me if we have therapies for smoldering. If that's correct. Uh, the former. You've you've already mentioned the smoldering. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we do have uh, protocols for people with relapse refractory. We have currently uh, one study open where we are using uh, two uh, more targeted uh, approaches uh, as drugs in combination. One of them is an mTOR inhibitor, and the other one is an HTEC inhibitor. And we have done a lot of research at the NIH trying to understand what type of uh, molecular uh, mechanisms are driving uh, the disease when it gets refractory, for example. Uh, and we have, in our research, found that these types of mechanisms that involve these uh, targets are important. So we have developed, based on that research, one treatment trial, and we have done this in collaboration with the Mayo Clinic. So that's one study we do have open. Uh, we just completed another study that is currently just, we just completed that, so that's currently not open for enrollment. There are other studies as well uh, that we do in collaboration with uh, uh, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute for Relapse Refractory. We have one study that's led by Dr. Rich Child, where he uses activated natural killer cells from the individual to take out the natural killer cells from the blood, and then you grow them in the lab, you activate them, and give them back. So that basically is an immune therapy. Uh, also, Dr. Steven Rosenberg at the NIH has therapy with cell therapy, which is similar to what recently was published in the New England Journal for CLL with the, the UPenn group with Carl June. They showed that using uh, activated immune cells, uh, they actually were able to, to cure, they claim, some people with CLL. And at the NIH, Steve uh, Rosenberg has developed similar approaches uh, for other cancers. So far, that, no patients with myeloma have been treated, but there are a couple of lymphoma patients that do, and it looks very promising. So those are examples of studies that are ongoing for relapse refractory. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. And um, if I might add one, one thing, um, we recently heard um, from uh, Dr. Dury and others that um, allogenic should uh, probably uh, be delayed um, for people who might be eligible for exciting drugs emerging, uh, because uh, I suspect that. Uh, an allogenic transplant might disqualify anyone from just about uh, most other clinical trials. Is that, in fact, the case, uh, that uh, the the, uh, the coming drugs are so exciting that uh, maybe allogenic should be put off uh, to uh, keep people eligible for potentially uh, productive clinical trials? Well, I think that's a very good and very difficult question. So. As you probably know, uh, allogeneic transplant is used in different types of diseases, not only myeloma, and also what's well known is that it's a quite toxic type of approach. So uh, unfortunately, the treatment-related mortality is not trivial. And also for those people who undergo it, uh, the people you follow them over time, 
if you go through Allo, they have chronic graft versus host disease, and it can be quite tough. So having that said, you, we are talking about very potent therapy that also has a lot of downside. But if you have someone who's very young who has very aggressive disease, I guess you, you have to think about pluses and minuses here. And if you really want to fight the disease, maybe there are people who are willing to do that at the expense of these toxicities and these risks. Because if you don't control a very nasty disease, the disease may be the winner. So that's kind of the difficult thing. And then you throw in the question you're asking, what about using other drugs? What's the timing? What shall, how shall you do that? So I think some treatment protocols for new drugs, they do allow people to having done an allogeneic transplant, but others they don't. So, so if you do new drugs and they work, then that turned out to be the right way. But if you do new drugs and they are not successful, you may end up in a situation where you may not even be able to, to do the allogeneic transplant because you, the patient could get too sick. So it is a very complicated question, and I think every single case has to be reviewed in full detail and all the options have to be put on the table. And in the event that the therapy that was chosen works, perfect. If not, all the options have to be put on the table again, and it has to be done every time for every single case. That's my, that's my way of thinking. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Oh, okay, thank you so much. Okay, we'll go to our, our next caller. The area code is 801-653-3926. Okay, go ahead with your question. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Langren, uh my favorite question to ask uh, the heroic folks like yourself that are that are making headway in this disease is, is uh, and you, you you've spoken a little bit to this, but maybe we can be more specific. My question is, what's, uh, what is the greatest barrier for you in, in moving your, your research forward and, and moving to a cure? And, and, and how, how might the myeloma community help you? What's, what's the, what is that one, maybe one thing that could be taken out of your way to, to uh, move forward quickly? To mean for me leading my current research program? Yes, exactly. Um, well, uh, uh, that's a hard question. I think we are very well positioned to do a lot of the things I was talking about. So I guess the thing that would speed up would basically be more resources. That's really the major limiting factor because I think the questions are pretty clear to us uh, and uh, we need to to work harder. I can give you some examples. For example, I took five patient samples uh, this past week and I want to do whole genome sequencing, and uh, I want to do that in uh, more than one sample from the same individual, and we're talking about $100,000 expensive assays. So out of the grants that I have, I spend a lot of money uh, on very few samples, and I think at the end of the day, uh, we're not going to be able to solve the, all the questions with so few samples. We have to do it in smaller steps. I think mm -hmm. the, the the Black Swan initiative is meant to to kind of take care of that because if we can kind of point out the, some of the key questions, the IMF is trying to collect research funds from various sources and then support projects around the world that focus on this area. So that's a way to kind of overcome this problem. 
a lot mm -hmm. of research is done in small chunks, and it really doesn't make the major breakthroughs. So I think if you want to do a major breakthrough, you have to be very serious about it. You have to not do just one small little thing. You have to do it. It, it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy. So someone needs to really do it, and that re implies a lot of sustained uh, support. So that's my, that's my answer to your question. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. Okay, we have another caller, um, several callers write in with questions. And a question from Bob was, he said, I recently read somewhere that around 80% of all people over the age of 50 carry some cancer cells which may or may not exhibit some type of progression to cancer. I agree that there should be an ongoing effort to reach minimal residual disease, but is it worthwhile to reach zero residual disease, and would it be possible? And I think you spoke about this a little bit. Well, so I don't know if it's possible, uh, and I don't know if it's meaningful. Uh, I think you could envision the following uh, uh, kind of scenarios, like major scenarios. One is that you actually can develop a test that is a true test. So if people are negative with this test, the disease will never come back. That would be like mm -hmm. the, the dream scenario. But I guess you could also envision a scenario where you still could pick up a little bit of disease, and maybe the immune system can control it, and it mm -hmm. may not become a problem. It's like MGUS. And you could also envision a scenario where there is a little bit of, I mean, what's the definition of disease? I guess the definition of disease is that someone is sick. So if you have something detectable, you know, it's not necessarily a disease. It's like a condition. So a little bit of a condition. Uh, and then if, if you need to add some drug to control it, if, as long as you don't get sick and it doesn't get worse, I think that's, that's still a major, major uh, breakthrough. And that's, 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 that's possible that that is where we're gonna gonna end this whole work. That we we may be able to pick up some positive MRD with the best technique we have, but it still mm -hmm. won't get worse. And I would be perfectly happy with that as long as people don't get sick. So mm -hmm. I think to me to me it's a matter of having non-arbitrary uh, tests like yes, no, positive, negative. We want to have quantitative measures, and that means mm -hmm. that we have to have very sensitive techniques that allows us to quantify over time. Mm -hmm. so I'm, for example, looking right now, I'm looking, I can tell you, if you do bone marrow biopsy, you take out the DNA, we have already done this, and you sequence the tumor, mm -hmm. and then from half, half a milliliter of plasma, we can already now, in our lab, find the signature of the tumor cells in the bone marrow in half a milliliter of plasma. We, we can pick it up. We can already do that. We can quantify mm -hmm. that. So I think if we work a little bit more on that, we then will have tools to see if it goes down to zero. Mm -hmm. And then we can use that as blood test over time. We don't have to do bone arrows. So I'm very, very excited about that. That's one of my key interest areas right now. I think we would all love less bone marrows. <laughs> I'm working. We are working. We are working super hard. We are, this is this is probably what I work the hardest right now to do that. Oh, okay. We have one more question. Well, two more questions. Um, one is from Carolyn, who asks, "Can a patient join your clinical trials even though they may be treated somewhere else? And then logistically, how do they go about doing that? And just you know, in general, how does that work?" So for people who are treated for multiple myeloma elsewhere, uh, again, we, as I said before, we try to be generous. We, if people really want to come and see us, we usually offer that. And mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe it's risky to tell you that, but we actually would do that 
without any charge. <laughs> Probably mm-hmm. very many people want to come. We actually mm-hmm. would do that. Uh, so our website is www.multiplemyeloma.cancer.gov. Uh, so that's our website. So uh, my patient coordinator gets a lot of these requests. So that's possible to do. But for people who are treated elsewhere, I don't think it's good to pick a doctor, start therapy, and next week come and see us because mm-hmm. that kind of distracts the other doctor. We are happy yeah. to see people, of course, but mm-hmm. I think if someone picks a doctor, then you kind of make a choice. Go with mm-hmm. that. We are always happy to see the patients after therapy has been delivered or if there is some issue or whatever. But I think it's not really it's not really fair to pick one doctor and then immediately challenge it. I don't think that's the right way of doing it. Then there mm-hmm. is mistrust. I, I don't think that's a good idea. For people who have small ring myeloma, we follow people with small ring myeloma. So mm-hmm. even if they are treated elsewhere, they actually can be followed by us for our small ring program. So that's a little bit different. So we have a follow-up program for people with small ring. So that's mm-hmm. different. But for newly diagnosed, we probably would offer a second opinion visit. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. Okay, the last question has to do is from Margaret. She's a well-known blogger, and she has a blog called Margaret's Corner. And she has smoldering myeloma. Um, Her question is related around the psychology, really, of this changing the name from, um, you know, smoldering to myeloma to potentially early myeloma. So she says, words have a profound effect on us, the patients. The idea that some high-risk smoldering myeloma patients um, should start thinking that they are early myeloma stage is um, abhorrent to me. I don't even like the expression smoldering myeloma. I prefer inactive myeloma. Um, so she says, why why jump ahead? Is it necessary? And um, she says eight years ago, she she's still going strong with no crab symptoms, no chronic infections. So it's a, it's a definite tricky balance to to can you address psychologically how we encourage patients to get the treatment they need but maybe not treat what they what they don't need and and anyway how do we keep it in a positive and not a negative sense i think that's an excellent another excellent question and i think it's very 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 important uh i completely agree for people who are asymptomatic i even said before uh, what's the definition of a disease i think if you're not sick, you really have a disease. I, I don't think so. I think it's more of a condition. Uh, mm-hmm. And we all have conditions. If you start looking through every single organ system in every single person, there is probably something. It's just a matter of how much you look. Mm-hmm. So I think in my, this is my personal take on this, in my opinion, I think if someone has uh, an early uh, stage of a cancer and you can do something about it, mm-hmm. uh, if for people who want to know that, I think it's unfair to just say, watch and wait till it becomes horrible. I think that's not right. At mm-hmm. least that needs to be addressed in a, in a, in, in a careful uh, manner, in a research setting, and that's, that's the reason why we have done these studies. But I think what's also important to keep in mind here is that, and I think we have talked about it today, smoldering, the smoldering category is not like one size fits all. Some people have a mm-hmm. very high risk. People don't have that. So uh, if, if, for example, we hear someone now has it for more than five years and nothing happens, everything is fine. That sounds like it's a low risk. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would, of course, never 
propose that something should be done for someone who has a very low risk profile. I think the risks and the benefits have to be very well balanced. You cannot in- introduce more harm. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, we don't know really if early treatment is the way to go. Although there was a paper published uh, yesterday in the New England Journal, as you probably saw from the Spanish group, and we have been waiting for that to come out for a long time, when they used lanolidomide and dexamethasone versus nothing, and they showed that if you treat high-risk smoldering patients, the overall survival was highly reduced. The risk of dying was 60 to 70% lower three years mm-hmm. after diagnosis. So that's a huge mm-hmm. difference. Yeah. And you can, there are a lot of comments to be said about that study, but nevertheless, it's a randomized study, and it shows what it shows. So my answer to, to the question is that I think we have to be very, very respectful. We cannot treat every person the same. And we cannot tell people they have a disease because there's a lab abnormality. That's wrong, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So I think looking into details and then counsel people and say, this is what it is, and be honest and say there is there very limited information uh, in this area. We don't know if early treatment is going to become the standard and this is this is information that's available, but for those people who prefer to do intervention in the setting of having a high-risk signature, this is what's available out there. And I think that's kind of a very descriptive way. And I think for people who want to know that, I think that information should be available. And mm-hmm. I think that they should also talk to more than one person. But mm-hmm. I agree, you should definitely not treat every person. That would be wrong. And you have to be very respectful. So yeah, that's my way well, of- yeah, thank you so much for addressing that because it, it the psychological impact and the stress and and everything is a, is a very big factor <laughs> in in patients' treatment. And I think one thing this this is pointing to is the more information that we have about the disease um, specifically and per, the personal aspects of the disease of our disease is is so important. So I would I will be posting the Spanish results as part of this blog post. Well, thank you, Dr. Langren, for joining us today. We know you have to catch a flight, um, but we are completely delighted that you shared such great information with us. We look forward to hearing more about your findings as your research continues to progress. And um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Jennifer, and I wish you a wonderful weekend. Take care. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to another... Thank you for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for another inpatient radio interview that helps connect myeloma patients with researchers to drive better outcomes for us all.